Boston area resident Rachel Sweeney got an early start on Christmas shopping this year. She decided on November 4th or 5th or 6th, somewhere in there, that she would get a jump and beat all the post-Thanksgiving holiday traffic, and she would go to Macy's and get a bunch of her Christmas shopping done. So Rachel went. She went out that day to a, to a Macy's that was kind of near where she was and, uh, and, and then went home. And she came home with a whole car full of presents. And when she got out of her car, she parked her car in the driveway. She saw that her boyfriend happened to be at her house that day. And so uh, she parked the car and went in to greet him and forgot about the Christmas presents. A couple days later, uh, her boyfriend called her and said, I have been looking for my cell phone for two days. Have you seen my cell phone? And she said, well, no. And, he, and so she went to her car to see maybe if it got left in the car. And she went and looked in the car and she noticed that her iPod was not in her car. And then she thought, wait a minute, where are all my Christmas presents? And all those Christmas presents that she had uh, left in her car, somebody had stolen them. They stole all the presents out of, her, out of her car. They had taken her boyfriend's cell phone and his iPod out of his truck. And it was a bummer way to start your Christmas season. I mean, all your Christmas presents get stolen. And sometimes, you know, <laughs> you just feel like when something like that happens, it's like, seriously? Does life have to give me one more small blow? Well, the next weekend, Rachel decided, uh, completely bummed out, that she would go back to Macy's and rebuy all of the presents, bummed out that it would cost her twice as much to go Christmas shopping this year. This time she decided to go to a Macy's that was a little closer to her house. So she went to a different Macy's and she went in and she rebought all the things that she bought before. And she came back and as she's putting these items in her car, she notices a man walk by her going into Macy's. And she thought to herself, that's interesting. That guy bought the same unique sweatshirt that I bought from my boyfriend. How interesting. And then she thought, wait a minute here. Hmm. And so she watched this guy who had bags with him go into Macy's. And so she followed him and she followed him to the, to the uh, customer service counter where he proceeded to return all the same things that she had purchased and, and just purchased again. She went, hmm. She immediately grabbed a security guard and said, uh, I think this guy stole all my presents. And lo and behold, sure enough, she ran into the very same guy that stole all of her presents. And so uh, the police came and they arrested him. And they at, back at his house in his car, they found her boyfriend's cell phone. And they found like three or four iPods that didn't belong to either one of them. And so, uh, you know, we, we kind of hear stories like this and we say, that's awesome. Because we like justice, you know? When someone does something wrong, we love it when they get nabbed. And how cool that he gets nabbed by the very person that he had tried to burn in the first place. We love it, especially when justice happens in a timely manner. I mean, like next weekend. I, I, I love that. You know, just boom, boom, it's taken care of. But in reality, some of us, and we all understand that sometimes justice doesn't happen like that. Sometimes it's not immediate. We live in a microwave society. We all love our microwaves. Well, most of us do anyway. We love our microwaves and we want everything instantly. We live instant here or instant there. We love, we love instant. And so sometimes it's very hard for us in our culture when we don't get immediate justice. Sometimes things just look dark and we say, oh man, not again. If there's a truth from the book of Jeremiah we're going to read is that when things look dark, God has a promise for the future. 
when things look dark, he has a promise for the future. That's something the prophet Jeremiah, he really understood. Because Jeremiah, this prophet, his days were dark. Now, you have to understand, Jeremiah lived um, quite a long time, um, about 500 years, 600 years probably before the birth of Christ. And uh, Jeremiah was in interesting times. 350 years before Jeremiah lived, the kingdom of Israel, God's special people, 350 years earlier, had split into two kingdoms. They had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And uh, 130 years before Jeremiah writes, 130 years previous to this, that northern kingdom had gotten wiped out by, by the world power of Assyria. Assyria came through. They conquered the north. Part of this was God's judgment on the people for not obeying his commands that he had laid out for them. And so the Assyria just wiped them off. They scattered them across the face of the known world or they just killed them. And that's what happened to the north. So this was 130 years ago. In 130 years since that time, it's been a rough go for the, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. The people are in the process, by the time Jeremiah's writing, of being conquered by a new, for, a new foreign or world power, the nation of Babylon. Babylon had come in and Babylon was uh, pressing at the gates of Jerusalem. And they, they had already conquered them. And, uh, and they had taken a bunch of, uh, of Israelites from Judah back to Babylon in exile. And now we're looking at a time where the king of Babylon, because he had conquered these people, he set up his own king in Israel, in, in the south. He, he set up a king, and that king was basically a puppet. His goal and job was to bow the knee of Israel to Babylon over and over and over again. That king knew that his primary goal was not to lead the people in righteousness or worship God. His primary goal was to make Babylon happy. So Jeremiah is in a time where no one was really following God and no one is really righteous. No one is righteous. righteous is a, a, righteousness is a key idea in all of scripture. Righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? Well, righteousness is a very relational word. It's this idea of being right with God, being in right standing with him. Fully keeping God's standard is the way to be in right relationship with him. And in the Old Testament, the Jews tried hard at certain points to obey the law so that they could have righteousness, so they could be in right standing with God. But the truth is, is that we learn that no one has righteousness. There's no one who's righteous. And so Jeremiah has been given this job of prophesying God's judgment in a very dark time. I mean, this is going to be, in just a few years, the complete and utter destruction of Jerusalem. It's coming. And at the heart of all of this darkness, in the heart of Jeremiah preaching to these people a message of destruction, 600 years before the birth of Jesus, in the heart and in the in the trenches and in the thick of some of the darkest times in the in nation's history, Jeremiah writes this little verse in, in chapter 23, verse 5. He says, in the midst of a message of destruction, he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In the darkest times when the 
king is not following God, Jeremiah says a time is coming. There will be a king who does what's right. There is a time when a nation will be restored. You see, in the darkest of times, the promise of Christmas was still to come. In the darkest of times, the promise of Christmas, Jeremiah said it. Jeremiah looked forward. The promise of Christmas was to come. So the days are coming. These days are coming, Jeremiah tells us. And Jeremiah is going to tell us basically three things. It wouldn't be a good sermon if there weren't three things. And so it just amazingly enough, Jeremiah has three things he wants to say to us. The days are coming first. The days are coming even though there were unrighteous shepherds. The days are coming even though in Jeremiah's time there were unrighteous shepherds. All right, so Jeremiah lived in a time when the leaders of God's people weren't doing what they were supposed to do. Look back at verse 1 and 2. Woe to the shepherds. We don't use the word woe a lot, but uh, we ought to, you know. Woe. Woe to the shepherds. This is not a good word, woe. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. All throughout the Old Testament, God had put shepherds in charge of the people. They were leaders who were put in place to guide the people. One of these leaders was the king. The king was supposed to lead the people towards God. The king was supposed to trust God fully. The king was supposed to be obedient to what God commanded. Instead, the king, during Jeremiah's time, was making alliances with other nations instead of trusting God. And he cared very little about whether or not the people followed God. What the king cared about was his own survival as the king. And instead of being righteous, the king was a pragmatist. The king would do whatever it took to stay set up as king. And the king is supposed to be righteous, but definitely he's not in Jeremiah's time. Several years before he penned these words, in the year 597, Babylon came in. And they, they basically broke through the walls and they subdued the king of, of Judah at the time the rightful descendant of David on the throne. And, and, uh, and, and it was a mess. Let's just say that. And so the king, uh, a- after several attempts at a king, they finally got this guy named Zedekiah in there. And I mentioned earlier, Zedekiah was a puppet. Zedekiah had Babylon's best interest in mind because that's the only way they'd let him remain king. If he didn't do it, they'd come in, slit his throat, and find somebody else to do the job. And so Zedekiah had his own best interest in mind. This is the king, the shepherd of God's people that's working when Jeremiah is prophesying. There's other, there's other leaders, other shepherds of the people, though. It wasn't just the king. There were these people that, called the prophets. Jeremiah was one of them. Now, a prophet of God was supposed to speak for God. He was supposed to turn the people to God. And he was supposed to speak truth, convincing truth, that would make people really uncomfortable. Nobody likes a prophet, right? Nobody does. The prophet comes into your life and he says something in the Bible that you don't like that makes you really uncomfortable because it's truth. 
That's what a prophet was supposed to do. In Jeremiah's time, there were a lot of false prophets. They spoke for themselves. They didn't speak for God. They spoke lies to the people. The prophets would go around saying, hey, listen, everyone, listen up, heads up. I know Babylon is surrounding the city and it looks really bad for us, but God won't let his chosen special nation fall. Don't worry. No matter how bad it looks, everything's going to be just fine and don't worry about it. And Jeremiah is the one prophet who's screaming, no, that's not true. That's not true. The city's going to be destroyed. The false prophets were kind of like the everything's going to be all right, you know, like the Bob Marley of the day, you know. I mean, that's the false prophets. They ran around singing. Everything's going to be all right. And so, uh, but Jeremiah had a message that people didn't want to hear. The leaders of the people were not righteous. The leaders of the people weren't right with God, and they certainly weren't leading God's people towards a right relationship with him. And so there's this really fascinating play on words in the text, and um, if you just read quickly, you don't, you don't catch it. Um, in verse 2, God says to the sh- these false shepherds, he says, Because you have scattered my flocks and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them. Literally, that, that word means not visited. You have not visited the people. In other words, God's saying to the shepherds, you're not doing your job. Now look, look what he says. You haven't bestowed care on them. <laughs> You haven't visited them. <laughs> I'm going to visit you, all right. I mean, that, that's the idea. God's just flipping it. You didn't do what you were supposed to do, so I'm coming, and you're not going to like it. The leaders had failed the people. The shepherds were unrighteous. The king was unrighteous. And so because the leaders had failed, the people were completely unrighteous. Now, Earlier, uh, I was sharing that article about Rachel Sweeney from Boston who got all her presents stolen. And then, uh, and then in, a, in a crazy turn of events, she was able to nab the guy who'd stolen all her presents. Um, at the bottom of an article now, most articles you read online have Facebook comments attached to them. And so actually, Rachel posted on her own story. That was kind of cool. But you look down the very last one at the bottom. This just scratched. I just scratched my head when I looked at this. Because uh, somebody did, clearly didn't get it, all right? Look, look, look here what this says. Val Pack, I don't know who Val Pack is, but uh, maybe that's the coupon thing. Anyway, he says, now that's karma. Merry Christmas. <laughs> what? Wait, what is that guy smoking? He's smoking something. He clearly doesn't get Christmas or karma at all. Christmas has nothing to do with karma. Because Christmas would not have happened if karma were real. Because karma says, if you do something nice, something nice will happen to you. If you do something bad, something bad will happen to you. If you believe in Christmas and karma, Christmas should have never happened. Because none of us have done a good enough thing to ever deserve God in human flesh. No one of us has ever done enough good things. We haven't even, like, wet the whistle of good things. You and I are evil. I mean, that's what we are. I mean, if this is a scale, our scale tips towards evil. There is no such thing as karma in Christmas. Because if Christmas and karma were true, we wouldn't deserve Jesus. Psalm 14.3 says this. There is no one 
who does good. Not even one. That's dark times. In the darkest of times, the promise of Christmas was to come. In the darkest of times, though, the promise of Christmas was to come. The days are coming, he says. You know, there's a pretty easy application for us as Christians, as American Christians, because what we understand, just like Jeremiah understood, is that there are unrighteous shepherds all around us. I mean, we live in Iowa, all right? The, the capital of political ads. You know, the capital of phone calls. Uh, you, I mean, we are abused and beat up by that stuff more than any other place in the country, I think. I mean, it's continual. It's a bombardment. And we understand, you and I just, we understand what it's like to be unrighteous. And we understand our leaders get it too. I mean, just look at the list of Christian leaders who have shown us their own unrighteousness. The list of failings goes on and on and on. And we, but we continually turn to our leaders, Christian leaders, political leaders, and we continually look for someone to be righteous. We say, can we just have one person who's righteous to stand up and lead us towards righteousness? But we will never find a shepherd who's righteous except for one, Jesus. I think the reason that we're constantly looking for our politicians and for our Christian leaders to be totally and completely above reproach and totally and completely righteous is because in us, we have a longing for a righteous shepherd. We're hardwired to find a leader who will point us to righteousness. But every leader has and will fail. Every political candidate from Obama to Ron Paul, none of them are truly righteous. And when we look for a leader to lead us in righteousness, we affirm that the desire in our hearts will truly only be found if we meet Jesus. You see, in the darkest of times, the promise of Christmas was to come. The days are coming, Jeremiah says. Let's face it. I think these times that we live in look extremely dark political crisis, global efforts to hinder the work of the gospel, self-centered, hurtful people, politics, people, problems. Leave global politics out of it. It's just the world's in a dark place. We understand that we need a righteous shepherd. And all we have to really do is to affirm the darkness of these times we live in is to look internally. Because each of us can affirm that truth from Psalms. We're not righteous. Not one of us. In the darkest of times, the promise of Christmas was to come. All the leaders in our lives who fail us, they all point to someone else. The unrighteous shepherds around us all point to our need for a righteous shepherd. The days are coming when we'll have a righteous shepherd. And that's our second Second of three today. The days are coming when we'll have a righteous shepherd. All right, so this is the verse that we're always familiar with at Christmas time because it's a prophecy of Jesus. It points right to him. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord our righteousness. 
What Jeremiah is well aware of is this Davidic promise that sometimes you and I don't really process when we're thinking about who Jesus is and what he came to fulfill. One of the, thing, one of the promises that God made King David hundreds of years before this was he said to King David, King David, I'm so pleased with you. You're a man after God's own heart that I'm going to make a promise. As long as there is a king in Israel, what, as long as there is a king, true king in Israel, he will always be one of your descendants. A descendant in the line of David. Look at Jeremiah thirty three seventeen. Let me put this up there. Jeremiah says later, just, just 10 chapters later, for this is what the Lord says. David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. By the time of Jeremiah, this promise just looks completely false, to be honest. In Jeremiah's time, Babylon is a knocking. It's only a matter of time before Jerusalem is destroyed. Those that are left alive would eventually be taken into captivity. They'd be taken back to Babylon. We get our great stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel in the lion's den. All that comes from that period of captivity when they're off in a foreign country trying to survive as a remnant of God's people. Jeremiah sees all this. And what it looks like right now is it looks like David's family tree has been chopped down at the stump. It looks like God's promise is false. But Jeremiah looks forward to a time where David's descendant would rule justly. He talks about, it's like this idea, a branch. It's like a wild shoot coming out of a stump. I don't know if you've ever tried to kill a tree and you cut the thing down and the tree won't die. Normally I just have problem keeping my trees in my yard alive. But uh, once in a while you get a stubborn tree, you'll try to chop it down. You'll cut it off with the stump and uh, it'll start growing again. I mean, I think that's what... what uh, Jeremiah has in mind here. It's this picture of you think that David's family line is cut off from the throne, but it's not. The day is coming. Did you know Jesus was a descendant of David? He's in the family line. All this points to Christmas Day. Jesus is the wild branch shooting off of the stump that looks like it's cut down. All this points to Jesus. Jesus, God with us, was born. He is the righteous branch. When all the shepherds were unrighteous, Jesus came to be the righteous shepherd. When all the people were unrighteous, Jesus came to be righteousness for us. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. In the darkest of times, the promise of Christmas was to come. The days are coming. Okay, so what, what you have to see here is there, there's another play on words coming. And, and Jeremiah, you know, I don't think he just got into a trance and started jotting this stuff down. Jeremiah put thought into his words because Jeremiah does another play on words here. Um, when at the end of verse six, he says, this is the name by which he'll be called the Lord, our righteousness. That word is eerily similar to the king of Israel at the time, his name. The king of Israel was named Zedekiah and literally Zedekiah means righteousness is Yahweh. Yahweh is the name for God. Righteousness is God. That's what Zedekiah's name means, but Zedekiah was utterly failing. So Jeremiah flips it. He says, the real king, the one that is coming, this shoot, this branch, literally means Yahweh or God is our righteousness. Zedekiah means righteousness is God. 
<laughs> this means God is our righteousness. Okay, so you have to understand, and don't miss this, the gospel never gets old. We need to hear the gospel, and we need to hear it spoken often. We need to speak the truth of the gospel often. Christmas is about God setting his plan in motion. It's about God becoming righteousness for us. When all the people in Israel were unrighteous, when all their shepherds were unrighteous, there's a king to come who would not just be righteousness for himself. He would be righteousness for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul says, hundreds of years later, God made him, that's Jesus, God made him who knew no sin. Jesus didn't sin at all. He was God. God made him who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Elsewhere, Paul says, we find our righteousness in Christ. In the darkest of times, the promise of Christmas was to come. The days were coming. Christmas is the gospel. Friends, you don't ever lose sight of the fact that in your unrighteousness, you need a savior. I need a savior. I mean, you wonder why your marriage is struggling. It's because you're a sinner. You wonder why you're having issues in your life and, and you keep screwing things up. You wonder why you get up in the morning and you're like, have this feeling of guilt over you. It's because you're unrighteous. And there's no possible way in our own selves that we can earn God's faith. We can't restore the relationship with God. It's broken and messed up. That's why the Lord is our righteousness. That's what Jesus did. He came to be one of us. He died and he rose for us. He became my righteousness. And so when I wake up in the morning and I just feel this guilt hanging over my head because there's no way I can possibly fix my standing with God, I remember the truth. The truth is that Jesus is my righteousness. He became sin for me. He became my righteousness. And so I'm right. In the darkest of times, the promise of Christmas was to come. For Jeremiah, Christmas was still in the future. He probably didn't fully understand even what he was saying at this point. But for us, Christmas is in the past. So what do we do? What do we do? Jeremiah was looking forward to the Christmas. What do we do? Do we only look to the past? I often say, and I'm sure you've heard me say before, and I'll say it again, and pretty soon I'm going to be preaching the, uh, a, a book of uh, prophecy out of the Old Testament sometime next year, and uh, you'll hear me say it a lot then. But the prophet's job was twofold. He was to, to, to foretell truth. He was to speak truth to people. But his, also, his job was to foretell. There were times where prophets spoke of events to come. And when a prophet in the Old Testament saw the future, he couldn't always delineate a timeline with that. You know, if you've ever driven, driven into the mountains of Colorado, one of the coolest things is when you first see the mountains. You're coming up and you think they're clouds. And then you get a little closer and you go, wow, those are the mountains. That's awesome. And you look and you say, look at all those mountain peaks. But from the dismal plain of eastern Colorado, when you look and you see those mountains in a distance, you don't have any clue of which mountain's closer to you or which mountain's further away from you. They all just look like mountains. 
It's not until you get in it and you realize that some of these mountains are, are hundreds of miles apart. Some are farther from me. Some are closer to me. You can't tell. And in many ways, that's what happened in, in, with Scripture. When the prophets would write, Jeremiah would write and say, I see a time coming when this righteous one would come. But what Jeremiah couldn't always tell was that the, the time gap between the time Jesus would come be born and atone for our sins, and the time when he would come and establish his literal kingdom on the earth. Now, on this side of it, we go, whoa, the first mountain's all the way back there. I don't know when that next one's coming, but Jeremiah couldn't tell. And so that's what Jeremiah often does. He says, there's a time coming where a king is coming. He'll make us righteous, and he'll set up shop and be the righteous ruler. And what we know is that Christmas is in the past, But Jesus is coming back in the future. In the darkest of times, that's the promise of Christmas. We can't come to Christmas without remembering that Jesus is coming back. We can't look at anything about Jesus and not remember that Jesus' kingship will be established on the earth. The days are coming. Last thing. The days are coming when the righteous righteous shepherd will restore. So this righteous shepherd... He will restore. Look at verse 7 and 8. So then the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought up the Israelites out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought up the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of the countries where he had banished them, then they will live in their own land. All right, so you first have to understand what, Jeremiah is referring to. In, in Jeremiah's time, people would talk about God's faithfulness, and they would always reference one event. They would always look back in their past to the year 1440-something-ish, before Christ. 1400 years before Christ, they would remember this moment where the Israelites were captive in Egypt, and God led them out of Egypt. And when they came to the Red Sea, God parted the waters— God led the people across and he closed the waters and he saved them from the Egyptians. Whenever they would say, the one to talk about God's faithfulness, they would say, as surely as the Lord lives, as he was faithful to us to deliver us from Egypt. Whenever times were tough, they'd say, as surely as God lives. Remember, remember what he did in Egypt. Remember the Red Sea. Don't forget God is faithful. Now look, verse 8. Jeremiah is looking to the future to a time when even that event will be eclipsed. This is the regathering of God's people. It'd be bigger than God's miracle at the Red Sea. And there's a number of aspects of this. First of all, Jeremiah is looking to 70 years in exile for the people. And then after 70 years, he was seeing that God would bring Ezra and Nehemiah and he would lead them to bring the people back, to restore the temple and build the walls. But then he's also looking at a time in in Christ where we are all God's people. Paul calls this the mystery of the gospel. It's this engrafting in of us. I'm assuming most of us here are Gentiles today. We're grafted in as God's people. Paul, Paul talks about that in Romans. So he looks at that aspect. Then he's also looking to one day all people will bow to their righteous shepherd, Jesus. That's Philippians 2. One day every knee would bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we have in mind here of this event of God bringing his people together from every tribe and every nation back together under his kingship. That miracle will be a bigger miracle. 
in the darkest of times. You, you know what Jeremiah is saying here? Okay, so 130 years ago, the northern kingdom, God's people in the north, had been scattered across the face of the globe. And God's saying, as difficult as you think it is, I'm going to bring those people back to me. As impossible as that seems. In the darkest of times, the ultimate promise of Christmas is still to come. Jeremiah points us to the manger. And the manger points us to the cross. And the cross points us to the resurrection. And the resurrection points us to the ascension. And the ascension points us to the return. So yes, Christmas is 2,000 years in the past, but the promise of Christmas is still in the future. The promise of Christmas is still in the future. The king is coming. I was thinking about sort of takeaways today for us. Okay, Dave, this is a great message. I mean, in the darkest of times, we know Christmas is coming and the rewards of Christmas and Jesus coming back. We should always be looking forward to the return. I've preached that like 17 times in the last year. And so we should always be looking forward to the return of Jesus. But here's some other takeaways. First of all, we should remember that every leader that we look to, whether it be a leader at work or a leader in politics or a leader in the church, or a leader in the global church, whatever leader you have in life, they should remind you that that leader, he or she, is not Jesus. There is no righteous leader. Only Jesus gets that. You know, I mean, it's just, it's amazing at this political time. We look for all these, these candidates lined up on both parties, and we expect that one of them will fulfill all their promises and do everything we want them to do. And you would think that we would learn that that's never possible because they're all unrighteous. And I think it's a sober reminder that when we look at our politicians or our leaders or whoever in our life, we remember that should stir in us a longing for Jesus' true kingship. Every leader should remind us that he or she isn't Jesus. There's a second thought of application, and and that was just simply you and I should yearn for righteousness. You and I should yearn for righteousness. See, we settle for sin, and we think it's okay. So many of us have settled for sin. It's okay to be disgusted with the world, friends. That's okay. It's okay to watch TV and want to vomit. That's good. It makes us yearn for righteousness. It's okay to think something's wrong. It's okay to long for the return of Jesus. It's okay to long for sin to be rooted out in our lives. It's okay for us to long to be righteous like Jesus. It's okay to long for that. It's good. You and I should yearn for it, but we settle. We settle for less. The days are coming. It's Christmas in the past. It's his kingship and return is the future. It's okay to long for that. Every leader should remind us that he or she isn't Jesus. (laughs) You and me, we should yearn for righteousness. And the last point of application is, I think, is about the darkness of Christmas. You know, um, the suicide rate's higher around Christmas. You know somebody in your life who's always extra depressed at Christmas. You know, you have family problems and missing loved ones. And (laughs) some of you just think, oh, I want to be able to buy my kids presents and I can't. Because our finances are strapped and I wish I could. We think about all the things we don't have. Sometimes you, you know what it's like to walk into work and everyone's happy. And you're not. Because it's hard. Christmas time is difficult. 
We must cling to the hope of Christmas. I wish there was a, boy, I'm depressed at Christmas. Here's a little pixie dust. That'll make me happier, right? But in, in essence, we have to make a mental commitment to cling to the hope of Christmas. Because we remember that God cares deeply about us. You know God longs for a righteous relationship with you. He wants a right relationship. We must cling to the hope of Christmas. His righteousness is yours, even if you don't feel it. If your life is a mess because of the sin that you've created or others have created that mess in your life, we long for Jesus. That's why Jesus came and it's why he's coming back. The king of the manger will be the king of the universe. In the darkest of times, the ultimate promise of Christmas is still to come. Augustine was a great theologian from the 5th century. And, and, and Augustine was, was a really interesting guy. He had spent his entire life, and he was tormented by his own sin. If you looked at Augustine, and, and if you read his biography, which you can read his confessions, if you can get through that, man, you're awesomer than I am. And so, good English all in tow. And so, uh, uh, you know, you, Augustine was a guy who got what it was like to be unrighteous. He was tormented by his own sin and guilt, but eventually he could write, Our hearts are unquieted until they find their rest in thee. There is a truth this Christmas, and that's that the manger finds all our hope. Our hearts are unquieted until we find rest in the manger and the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and the coming of Jesus. It's hope for today. It's hope for the future. In the darkest of times, the promise of Christmas is still to come. That's how great our God is. That's the kind of God we worship. The God that is our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. Would you stand and sing with us as we celebrate this great God? How great.